Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer, Fred, Fred Hoffman. Are more immigration crackdowns coming to a farm near you? One California legislator is introducing a bill to make it tougher for agents to enter your workplace. A scathing report by an independent panel has just been released about the spillway problems at Oroville Dam. We have the details. We look at the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey and what it did to Texas agriculture. And a closer look at farming in Placer County. All that, crop reports, and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Assemblyman David Chu of San Francisco is pressuring state lawmakers to help immigrant farm laborers and others who are facing increasing danger. Chu is the author of Assembly Bill 450. If an ICE agent wants to go into workplace, that agent needs to have a warrant. That's David Chu. The bill would also prevent employers from disclosing employees' privacy information, such as a social security number or their immigration status, without an order from the courts. You know, we've been in existence for 30 years, and I got to tell you, I'm very proud of the fact that we have the same employees for for a long, long time. We have a very stable workforce, and that it doesn't come by accident. It comes because we try our best to provide them a safe and happy and, and productive environment to work in. That's Daniel Weiser of Wisely Family Farms in Tehachapi speaking at a rally for AB 450. And he told that crowd at the state capitol that he's not at all pleased about the idea of agents coming onto his property to seize his workers. And and now with, with the prospect of you know, uh, ICE agents coming and, and interrupting, you know, what we have built so long, you know, for so long, I don't cotton to that. I'm not going to stand by and, and, and see my employees um, hassled like that. Assembly Bill 450 would offer employers clarity about what to do if ICE agents target their places of business with indiscriminate raids. Round two of North American Free Trade Agreement renegotiations is in the books, concluding Tuesday in Mexico City. I am pleased to report that we have found mutual agreement on many important issues. That's U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, joined by counterparts from Mexico and Canada at the second round closing press conference. By the end of this round, we will have tabled over two dozen chapters, and I look forward to continued progress in round three and the ones that follow. The next round of NAFTA renegotiations takes place later this month in Canada's capital city of Ottawa. And as Mexico's Secretary of the Economy, Ildefonso Guajardo Villarreal, closed the event, he told reporters that Mexican, Canadian and U.S. officials have instructed our CN's chief negotiators to really engage in the following weeks in a way in which the momentum of this process can be presented in the third round. A broadband reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The CDFA and the USDA have established another quarantine zone to thwart HLB, also known as citrus greening disease. This time it's a 94-square-mile quarantine zone in Riverside and San Bernardino counties. Authorities detected citrus greening in a single citrus tree in the city of Riverside. Huanglong Bing, citrus greening disease, is a deadly disease of citrus plants and closely related species and can be transmitted from tree to tree by the pest, the Asian citrus psyllid. The quarantine will prohibit the movement of all citrus nursery stock out of the area while maintaining existing provisions allowing the movement of only commercially cleaned and packed citrus fruit. Any fruit that's not commercially cleaned and packed, including residential citrus, must not be removed from the property on which it is grown, although it may be processed or consumed on the premises. 
Once a tree is infected, there's no cure. It typically declines and dies within a few years. Among the steps that residents and farmers are urged to take to help protect citrus trees, don't move citrus plants, leaves, or foliage into or out of the quarantine area or across state or international borders. Cooperate with agricultural crews that are placing traps, inspecting trees, and treating for the pest. And if you no longer wish to care for your citrus trees, consider removing them so they do not become a host to the pest as well as the disease. Back in late August of last year, Agriculture Department analysts were projecting that this 2017 fiscal year ag export number would be $133 billion. But throughout the year, they've had to up those numbers. And we're going to continue to up those again. And they did it this week. USDA's chief economist Rob Johansson says three months ago, the forecast was $137 billion. But this week, we're almost at $140 billion in exports expected. $137.8 billion to be exact, which would be up at the same number as back in 2015. Reasons for the improvement? The fact that was coming down a little bit uh, relative to the extremely high levels we saw in 2016-2015. But we also know that we had a, a wonderful harvest last year for most of the major commodities. And South America had a bit of a tough time last year with their previous year crop. Now 2017 ag imports are also higher than expected, a record $116 billion worth, still leaving us with a trade surplus of $23.6 billion, biggest since 2015. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. San Joaquin County farm products saw a double-digit drop in value in 2016. The 14.5% drop in gross agricultural values for San Joaquin County is down to $2.3 billion for the year. The culprits include drought conditions and lower commodity prices in the region. There was a bit of good news as far as San Joaquin County commodities, though. The leading county commodity, grapes, were up 3% in value on average across all varieties, reports the Western Farm Press. Total almond production in that county, however, was down a bit. Almond grower prices dropped 31% to about $4,800 a ton. Milk remained number two on the year with a total value of about $362 million, or about 2.6% lower than the previous year. Cherries had a difficult year, too, in San Joaquin County. Adverse weather conditions led to yields 54% lighter than the previous season. couple of other bright notes, though. Blueberry prices were stronger on a crop that was slightly heavier than 2015, and bee producers saw honey production increasing on slightly stronger prices. Here's this week's California crop report. Alfalfa fields continue to be irrigated and baled. Sorghum for silage is in various stages of development. Corn silage continues to be harvested. Cotton was being irrigated. Bowls continue to develop. Black-eyed beans were drying and nearing harvest. Peach, nectarine, pear, fig, and the plum harvest is ongoing. Harvested stone fruit orchards were pruned and topped. Table grape harvest is ongoing as wine grape harvest is beginning. Valencia orange and finger lime harvest is ongoing. Irrigation and repair of irrigation systems continues, as always. Olives were developing well. Pomegranate harvest is now underway. Almond harvest is underway as well. The pistachio harvest is beginning. Walnut orchards continue to be irrigated. Both mechanical and chemical weed controls continue in orchards. In San Joaquin County, harvest continues on processing tomatoes, onions, honeydew melons, watermelons, cantaloupe, and sweet corn. Farmer market vegetables continue to be harvested and offered for sale. Over in Monterey County, the weather was moderate and allowed for continuous harvest and field work. 
All fall season commodities were in production. In Fresno County, harvest continues for tomatoes and peppers. In Tulare County, tomatoes, cucumbers, squash, and peppers were picked by certified producers and sold at local farmers' markets. Yellow squash, zucchini, eggplant, bell peppers, green chili peppers, as well as cucumbers were harvested and shipped domestically. Fall vegetables were planted, and they're developing well. Low-elevation, non-irrigated pasture and rangeland quality continues to deteriorate. Range conditions were reported to be fair to very poor. Cattle were being moved to higher elevations. The higher elevations provide more grass than previous years. Feed costs for cattle remain high. As the nutritional quality of range grasses diminishes, supplemental feeding has increased. Sheep grazed on retired pasture as well as in dormant alfalfa fields. In a report released last week, a team of independent investigators said the spillway failure at Oroville Dam was likely caused by long-standing problems with cracks in the concrete as well as a faulty drainage system beneath the concrete chute that may have been too thin in places. The report said that state and federal officials who inspected Oroville Dam relied too heavily on visual inspections. They ignored blueprints, construction records, and other documented clues that could have warned them about the dam's troubled flood control spillway long before it fractured in February. That fracture led to near catastrophe, as well as the evacuation of thousands of residents, inundating and ruining surrounding cropland and orchards. On a related note, the state has received 93 claims worth a combined $1.1 billion due to the damages from that spillway failure. Oroville-related claims included $57 million from the Yolo Land Trust and a $48 million claim from Garcia Farms. Also, there was a $14 million claim from Lang Family Limited Partnership. Kent Lang owns walnut orchards along the Sacramento River in Yolo County. He's a past president of the Yolo County Farm Bureau. Lang's lawyer says he lost a substantial amount of his orchards from the high water flows as a result of the dam emergency. Congress is back in session with a promise to work on tax reform this month. American Farm Bureau Federation tax specialist Pat Wolf says farmers need overall tax relief from Congress in any tax reform package. Farmers and ranchers need lower taxes overall, and in order for them to pay less taxes, they need special tools that help them deal with the ups and downs of the farm economy. There's a lot of talk about lowering business tax rates. But if rates are lowered and farmers lose things like cash counting, like kind exchanges, it could end up being a tax increase. Wolf says there is a lot of talk about lowering corporate tax rates, but says business structures vary for farms, most of which are not incorporated. Other possible changes include priority items for agriculture. On the table are income tax rates, lower capital gains tax rates, and possible elimination of the estate tax. All of those things are goals of Farm Bureau and would help farmers and ranchers. Yet to be decided is whether or not the tax reform bill will be revenue neutral, meaning for every dollar cut, another tax will take its place. One consideration to raise money is to eliminate the deduction for business interest. That would be very harmful to farmers. Farmers everywhere need to call their members and tell them that they want lower tax rates but not at the expense of losing the interest deduction, losing cash accounting, or losing like-kind exchanges. Michael Clements, Washington.
Rice grower Tom Butler in Sutter County tells the Rice News about his mixed feelings about the latest heat wave in our region. It's occurring as the Northern California rice crop is nearing its harvest. Well, it's certainly hot and doesn't make it very pleasant. You want to get all your work done a lot earlier than you, than you normally could. But, you know, this time of year, we're trying to pull some water, get the rice ripened, get the rice ready to harvest in about a month. And when it's this hot, you can kind of have some com- concerns about it, about it blanking out, not getting fully matured. But this year, I think it's helping more than it's hurting just because we were so late this spring and we were worried about a late harvest. And it's nice just to catch up a little bit with, the, with this heat. Here in California, the 2017-2018 rice production is projected to decline 9% to about 43.6 million hundredweight, mostly due to an 8% decline in area. There was substantial flooding in late winter and early spring here in California, caused by historically heavy winter rains as well as subsequent large snowmelt, and that hindered and delayed rice plantings this year. The Seminus Vegetable Seed Research Facility in Woodland in Yolo County is a huge spot for innovation and research and development for Seminus vegetables. Recently, Field Days was held at the facility, and some of their breeders talk about the latest developments in peppers, onions, watermelon, and cantaloupes. Hi, my name is Brian Just. I'm a, a sweet pepper breeder with Seminus, and we're breeding sweet peppers for the western U.S., and here we are at the Woodland Station looking at our new pipeline. We've got some great materials, some old standbys that have been around for a long time and some new, some newer varieties. One of the things we're really excited about is, is the concept of powdery mildew resistance, which we have in our advanced research pipeline, and along with improved quality and, and yield. Hi, I'm Franco Asoro. I'm the midday uh, onion breeder. I'm here to show you some of the exciting products we have in the pipeline. Uh, particularly, uh, I'd like to uh, focus on uh, the new lunch that we have. Uh, the name is uh, Minister. This variety uh, is mechanically harvestable. As you know, uh, in California, uh, there's an increasing cost of uh, uh, labor. So we would like to make it sure that when we release a variety, it's mechanically harvestable without sacrificing all the quality traits that we have for onions that the growers are used to, like, you know, quality, single center. This is, re- this is resistance packages. Hi, I'm Jerome Bernier, watermelon breeder here at Seminis. Um, I'm excited about my program because we're now able to offer a really wide range of products for growers. We've got big 36 count varieties, smaller 45 count varieties, and even smaller than that 60 count varieties. We've got varieties in the dark stripe and in the light stripe. And here I've got Tailgate, which is new, our newest launch. It's a 45 count variety, dark model stripe for the US-Mexico market. Hey, I'm Jeff Mills. I breed cantaloupe melon here in Woodland, California. This is my sales trial where we're demonstrating varieties that we've developed for growers all over the world. I'm really excited about Don David. It's a long shelf life cantaloupe. It's working really well in Central America and the main season in the US as well as Australia. It has a very strong plant, excellent fruit quality, and a really dense netting that looks very traditional and classy. More information about the Seminus line of vegetable seeds is available. Just go to seminus-us.com.
the devastation left behind by Hurricane Harvey on the Texas Gulf Coast and southwest Louisiana. We have never before seen this magnitude of rain on the order of two to four feet dumped across such a large area and the tabletop flat landscape is going to take a very long time to drain and recover from this unprecedented deluge. What is being done now in rescue and recovery efforts? We're working with Red Cross and our other partners to make sure that we have the supplies, the food, baby formula. And what lies ahead? We'll be actively engaged in assessing potential damages across all of the affected and impacted area by Hurricane Harvey. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey, Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner, and Texas State Conservationist Salvador Salinas are among the voices talking about this natural disaster, the aftermath, and efforts by the Agriculture Department, among many, in the recovery. I'm Rod Bain. And a look at response to Harvey, now and in the future is the subject of this edition of Agriculture USA. Epic and historic, these are words used to describe this monster known as Harvey. President Donald Trump speaking during the middle of this long drawn out assault of this hurricane. Storm force winds battering structures and several feet of precipitation accumulating in record setting flooding in a stretch of the western Gulf Coast of the U.S. As the waters start to recede from places like Houston, Corpus Christi, and Port Arthur, Texas, and southwest Louisiana, the nation is marshalling resources to help in the ongoing recovery efforts. For instance, Texas has set up a feeding task force to provide a coordinated response. USDA has members that are participating in that task force. And Cora Russell of the Agriculture Department's Food and Nutrition Service says examples of assistance includes waivers in Texas to allow schools in the National School Lunch Program to provide free meals and temporary waivers for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program recipients to use benefits to purchase hot foods and ready-to-eat hot foods. Meanwhile, USDA staff have been embedded at Texas State Emergency Management Headquarters in Austin as part of the recovery efforts. As Texas State Conservationist Salvador Salinas notes, the Natural Resources Conservation Service there is providing both boats and personnel to FEMA to assist in rescue operations along the Gulf Coast. At this point in time, the emphasis, of course, is on saving lives and rescuing people from the impacted area and affected areas. So at this point in time, we are highly engaged in those matters. The urge for both public and private citizens to volunteer in recovery efforts is strong, and rightly so. However, as Federal Emergency Management Agency Director Brock Long points out, from both a safety perspective, as waters will take weeks to recede, and the context of how long recovery efforts will take place, there's not necessarily an immediate need to volunteer. The need to volunteer is going to take place over the next couple years. This is still a very dangerous situation. The state of Texas is asking people not to go in to deploy unless they ask you to come in. They don't want to create additional victims in this situation, so they're asking you, please don't go on your own. Ann McCann is the National Emergency Program Coordinator for USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. She says among the hazards faced by emergency personnel in flood areas is wildlife, especially those also displaced from their homes by Harvey. So snakes, rodents, and as APHIS's Richard Johnson points out, fire ants. When soil gets wet and floods, the ants basically leave the ground and create these large rafts of up to hundreds of thousands of ants that just kind of float with the current. They float until they reach some area that will anchor them. If that happens to be a person or an animal, they will start doing what they do, stinging the animal. 
As much as possible, USDA staff and connected personnel at the local, regional, and state levels of Harvey-impacted areas are trying to start on recovery efforts. Francis Tolley of the Risk Management Agency says some crop insurance providers are making their way to those areas to begin damage assessment. It will still be obviously quite a mess down there with a lot of things still underwater, but trying to get started as soon as possible. And as Farm Service Agency Acting Administrator Chris Beyerhelm observes, employees at the local USDA service centers and state offices bring relatable perspective to those they are helping. This is something that's impacted everybody. Our employees are going through a lot of the same things that producers are going through. A lot of them have farming operations, ranching operations. In closing, one way you can learn more about disaster-related assistance and information from the Agriculture Department and connected partners is this online resource. USDA's Disaster Resource Center. The web address is www.usda.gov slash topics slash disaster. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. As citrus growers in Florida struggle with Huang Long Bing, citrus greening disease, California has for the first time in decades passed Florida in total citrus production. A government report shows California farmers sold nearly 4 million tons of citrus in the latest marketing year, and that compares to 3.5 million tons from Florida. Citrus greening disease has cut Florida citrus production. In California, the disease so far has been limited to backyard trees. Reports have been positive from Sacramento area para orchards where farmers are wrapping up harvest. Pear growers describe both the size and the quality of their crops as much improved from last year. Hot weather brought smaller-sized fruit and sunburn in a few cases, but for the most part, pears have done well this season. About two-thirds of California-grown pears will be canned, with most of the rest sold as fresh fruit. America's Ag Secretary wants to highlight something that happens only once every five years. Hi, I'm Sonny Perdue. As a former farmer and ag businessman, I know the value of the census of agriculture. Why is it important that farmers, ranchers, and other ag producers participate? It helps us to tell the story of U.S. agriculture and to make the right policies to help rural America succeed. So be counted. The census of agriculture is your voice, your future, and your opportunity. Ag Statistics Board Chair Joe Parsons puts it another way. The Census of Agriculture is the only source of comprehensive data down to the county level that shows the change in structure of U.S. agriculture and provides value for really everybody in agriculture to be able to understand where we are, where we've been, and where we're going. To make it even easier for people to turn in the 2017 Ag Census, USDA has made some innovations to its online data collection form. We'll have a secure portal that folks can come to and they can have their census questionnaire out on the web because after they answer a few screening questions, uh, they'll only get the questions after that that would relate to them. So if they only have corn and soybeans, they won't be asked about cattle or sheep or goats or, or shellfish or all of the things that represent the diversity of U.S. agriculture. Collecting the data online also helps USDA. You know, we want to make sure that we provide great value for the American people. And, and so uh, if we're not mailing multiple forms or, or, or have a need to, to, to reach back and call producers, if we can collect it on the web, that's the most efficient way uh, in terms of cost. And it's faster to process the data. The data are already available electronically, and we can be more efficient in terms of how we process the information. And we know that we're getting high-quality information so that we 
can produce high-quality statistics. Although responding online is encouraged, it is not the only way to submit a survey. We want to give them a good uh, electronic experience if they're willing and able to respond in that way, but if they're not, we'll make sure that they get a questionnaire. If you're curious about trying out the new online survey form, a demo version is available at agcensusoneword.usda.gov. Thanks in advance for your participation. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Quantity may be a bit lower, but quality remains high for California's wine grape crop. Wine grapes are reaching maturity in vineyards across California. The consensus among farmers and wine executives is that yields will be slightly below average, but quality has been excellent. Farmers say cool, wet days during bloom appear to have reduced grape production. Growers have also been checking the impact of late summer heat on their crops. The 2017 California walnut production is forecast at 650,000 tons. That's down 5% from 2016's record production of 686,000 tons. That's according to the USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service. The 2017 walnut season began with adequate chilling hours and record amount of rain during the winter and spring months. There were reports of orchards being saturated for several weeks, which resulted in a compromised root system. A higher-than-average insect problem also was reported. During the excessive heat waves over the summer, growers applied sunburn preventative materials. Harvests on walnuts expected to begin during the middle of September. Hi, I'm Josh Hunsinger, Placer County Agricultural Commissioner, and today we're uh, talking about another one of Placer County's uh, top five commodities. Today it's cattle, which um, we have a significant number of cattle here in Placer County, primarily for beef production. We're out here at the Bruin Ranch, and I'm here with uh, Bruin Ranch Manager Joe Fisher, who's going to tell you a little bit about the operation out here. Thanks, Josh, and thanks for the opportunity to share what Bruin Ranch is about and be listed as one of the top five commodities in Placer County. appreciate the opportunity. Bruin Ranch was established about 15 years ago. It's a strictly purebred Angus operation. We run about 250 mother cows, and I've been working here for 12 years now. So if uh, someone wanted to improve their herd and the genetics of their herd, they'd come to you uh, looking for a bull? Absolutely, absolutely. And we sell bulls from any wide array of, of arenas, you might say. We, we have bulls standing in stud and sell semen internationally. And then we'll sell bulls locally here in Placer County, five minutes down the road. A guy's been, he's our longest standing customer. We concentrate on higher end producers that, that want to target specific programs. And most of those cattle would, would qualify, or a lot of the cattle would qualify for certified Angus beef programs. And, you know, I've heard it said when you're a livestock producer, you're really, um, you're really farming uh, grass and forage and the livestock's almost like a byproduct of that. So that's kind of, in my opinion, Josh, that's, that's the untold story and value of livestock is we're taking low quality, undigestible forages and we're converting them into the one of the highest quality digestible byproducts, which would be protein and beef that could go out into, into the, the masses. And all the while, these, these landscapes and these oak savannas were created with the intention of being grazed by large herds of large ruminant animals. If we could use these animals to mimic the intentions in nature and, and create that soil churning in this, in this brittle environment, that's what creates the fully functioning microbe population. That's what keeps our soils correct and, and helps with the carbon sequestration and, and the water retention in the soil, which, which as you can tell, I'm super passionate about 
life. And, and I think that we're on the cusp of, of the public's attention being drawn to that and seeing that while we, we, we get all of our income from the sale of the protein that we produce through digesting these forages, I think that maybe the largest value in these cattle is a grazing tool. And that's something that, that maybe hasn't been monetized in the past. But I think that we look out in the next 10 to 20 years, people are going to start realizing the, the value of grazing stock. And you were talking a little bit earlier with me about like uh, cover crops and doing some different things to actually improve the uh, variety of plants that are growing out here in your pastures. The initial goal is to try to, and it started off as being a little bit lazy to be frank, but but I want to have a, a, the minimal inputs possible in our operation, and that's what keeps our, our bottom line correct. The more I pay for labor and our employees going out and doing things, the, the more it affects our bottom line, obviously. So if I could use cattle and I could use nature to do the work for me, this plot of land here, it was actually a new irrigation crop, and I wanted to to get rid of the compaction that may have been there without tilling or using alternative mechanized methods of churning the soil. So we planted a lot of, of larger, deeper tap-rooted plants. And we're also trying to figure out if we can create a model for for these, these cover cropping um, and, and more perennial plants that would provide a better option for finishing grass-fed livestock. I think that that's one thing that, that we could improve upon in the Sierra Foothills. There's a huge demand for that product from the consumer, but how do we create a highly sought-after, high-quality, consistent product when it's July and all of our grasses' qualities are diminishing? Well, if we can introduce some different varieties that thrive within those environments and can take advantage of that situation, then we can maybe finish those, those animals on a higher-quality roughage. Thanks so much, Joe. I think it's fascinating to see how nature and science interact and we are really uh, doing a lot for the environment while at the same time producing an economic crop and managing it to the best of your abilities. That's really uh, tremendous to see what's going on just right here in Placer County. If you'd like to learn more about Placer County's Agriculture Department, including all of the information on our crop reports, please visit placer.ca.gov slash agriculture. And if you'd like to learn more about how to connect with our local farmers and ranchers and all of our agricultural bounty, please visit placergrown.org. Placer County is certainly a diverse county. Many of you may think of Placer County as the place where there's a lot of malls in Roseville or maybe mini mansions in Granite Bay or South Loomis. But there is agriculture in this county and it's quite varied Placer County is rather an amazing county. It runs west to east from the lowlands of Roseville all the way to smack dab to the middle of Lake Tahoe. And overseeing all that agriculture that's there, and there's plenty there, is Josh Hunsinger. Josh is the Placer County Ag Commissioner. And Josh, you must have one heck of a job because we're talking about crops that go from rice to forest products that are under your purview. Yeah, as you said, uh, Placer County is an incredibly uh, diverse county with a lot of different geography and a lot of different types of uh, land uses and, and agriculture as well. All right, well, let's talk about uh, some of the crops grown and where they're grown. And uh, according to the 2016 figures, rice was number one. And rice doesn't come right to the first of my thoughts when I think of Placer County, but actually western Placer, Placer County has uh, a lot of low-lying clay soils that would be perfect for rice. 
Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that. I, I get that a lot. Um, the, the Sacramento Valley has anywhere on average between 500 and 600,000 acres of rice overall. And uh, Placer County has a kind of a strip of that rice from uh, west of Highway 65 from, from Roseville up to uh, the county line up by Sheridan. How many acres are under cultivation with rice? You know, rice is an annual crop, and so it varies. And we're actually seeing a little bit of a decline in acreage as uh, more tree crops, orchard crops are planted. But we've traditionally over the last, you know, 15, 20 years averaged about 15,000 acres a year. And you brought up tree crops, and uh, there is one tree crop that is very popular throughout California, and it's growing in Placer County as well, and it's among the top five ag products in Placer County, and that's walnuts. Was it just rice that went away to make room for walnuts, or what else was torn out to make room for walnuts? Yeah, so so the the decrease that we're seeing in rice is in many cases directly related to the increase we're seeing in walnuts. You know, we've seen uh, a little bit of increase on our crop report already in our walnut values, and um, that's going to continue to go up as more and more of these orchards that have been planted come into production. So we have a lot of really young orchards right now that aren't producing at full capacity, but overall our our, wal- our walnut acreage has probably increased by about threefold over the last five years or so. Is there much in the way of almonds in Placer County? You know, not up until the last year or two. We hadn't had any significant almond production for probably 50 years. There used to be some down in the southern part of Roseville down by PFE Road, and uh, we hadn't seen any significant cultivation up until the last couple of years when we had a couple of uh, commercial scale uh, almond orchards uh, planted. We probably have a little over a thousand acres of almonds in Placer County now. If anyone knows anything about Placer County agriculture, they may closely relate it with family farming because there's a a lot of long-established families that have been tilling the land and, and working the land for generations in Placer County. And uh, I'm thinking of in terms of nursery stock and, for instance, uh, the Fowler family. Certainly. We have, you know, that's one of the the neatest parts about my job is getting to work with uh, some of the descendants of literally the pioneers of of Placer County farming. And and we have a a number of farms, Fowlers among them, that have been in operation continuously under the same family for more than 100 years here in Placer County, and that's just such a tremendous honor to get to be part of that. Yeah, nursery stock is, what, the uh, fourth top-grossing crop for Placer County, uh, something like over $8 million worth. Uh, what does most of that nursery stock entail? You know, it's a mixture of, uh, as you mentioned, the, the Fowler, Fowler Nurseries produces uh, orchard trees, largely for commercial orchards, and so that's, you know, a production agriculture type of nursery nursery stock. And then we have quite a few large production nurseries that uh, produce plants for more residential settings, ornamental plants. And so it's kind of a it's kind of a mixture of both. I would expect as you know, the housing uh, construction, you know, the building all the homes down in, in Western Placer gets gets back, you know, increases again, following kind of the bubble that burst a few years ago, I would expect to see our, our or ornamental nursery stock production uh, continue to increase. As uh, people may imagine, with all the rolling hills and rock outcroppings in Placer County, much of it is pasture land. When you think of pasture land, you think of livestock, cattle, calves, other livestock. And 
that's a, a big sector of the economy, the ag economy in Placer County, isn't it? It sure is. You know, we've got a lot of a lot of cows and a lot of a lot of sheep here in Placer County, and um, you know that's something uh, that that is very important for a lot of reasons. That you know we have a lot of um, you know not just cattle production for cattle production's sake, but a lot of the environmental mitigation that comes along as a requirement of residential and urban development um, actually. Uh, is very compatible with land livestock uh, grazing. And so when people have to mitigate for burnal pools, for instance, um, that's often um, that land set aside, but then it's also grazed. Um, those are very compatible uses. And so, um, you know, some of the new environmental requirements that are coming into play are actually very complementary to livestock production. Yeah, we've got our traditional ranches, and then we're actually gaining some ground in some cases for grazing. Well, that brings up an interesting question. Uh, the rent-a-goat business for fire control, is, is that a thriving industry? Absolutely. I, I think the statistics are that we have over uh, 10,000 sheep and goats employed at various points during the year here in Placer County, uh, largely hired by um, some of our municipalities, such as some of our cities like uh, Rockland and Lincoln. Uh, utilize those sheep and goats as a great way to manage their uh, fire hazards and and uh, and uh, reduce reduce the vegetation load in some of their uh, open space. What about I won't say byproducts, but uh, ancillary businesses associated with ag, uh, like processing plants. Uh, what what is that story in Placer County? You know, for a lot of the types of crops that are not uh, sold in a raw form, like you know, peaches, for instance, can be sold directly from the farm as a peach, and they don't require any additional processing. So, you know, it's pretty easy to grow and sell peaches or pumpkins or mandarins, things like that. But for some of the other uh, crops, you know, one that comes to mind is timber. Another one is livestock. They're not sold in a raw form. Production can come to a screeching halt if the right infrastructure isn't in place. Uh, for timber, we obviously have the Sierra Pacific Industries mill down in Lincoln, which is really one of the few sawmills left in the Northern California, and it's just vital to our timber industry that we have that mill and that it stays open. But on the livestock side, there's really not any good options close by for our local livestock producers to have their animals uh, processed in a USDA-inspected facility. You know, that means that it's much harder for our local livestock producers to really participate in the farm to fork movement because they can't directly market their meat products. So what we're doing there is we're actually working, uh, the county has been working with our farm advisor and a group of local producers to see if maybe we could bring a USDA inspected processing facility here to Placer County um, and get it built and have all the proper uh, regulatory things in place to allow our producers to um, process and then market their meat locally. So really increase the amount of grass-fed beef and local lamb and pork and stuff available at farmers markets and at different places here in the county and, and in the Sacramento region. You used a very popular term uh, in that uh, description, farm to fork. It's it's a buzz term throughout California now to get people to know their farmer and to eat more local. And Placer County has a, a, a thriving little industry with Placer Grown. Talk about that. Yeah, we sure do. So, um, you know, we just had a 
we just had one of our pioneers and founders of Flasher Grown, Alex Ferreira, who is one of our Board of Supervisors members for over 20 years and kind of got that started along with Joanne Neff, who some, some folks may know. Uh, you know, Alex and Joanne were kind of pivotal in, in starting Placer Grown and, and some of our local farmers markets about 20, 25 years ago. And so that that whole umbrella of talking about all that's good about Placer County agriculture through the Placer Grown program, you know, that's something that I work closely with in my job. And the goal is really to help people, that local local consumers, to understand just what a rich agricultural bounty we do have here in Placer County. We have a great number of farmers markets. Um, we're really seeing an increase in the number of farm stands where, you know, people are having, a, you know, a little stand at their farm where, where people can come out to the farm and, and purchase purchase stuff directly from the farms. That whole local food um, movement is really just becoming more and more popular and stronger and stronger, but uh, pretty exciting to be a part of. You mentioned Joanne Neft, uh, a, a great uh, cookbook author, the author of The Art of Real Food, as well as the Placer County Real Food Cookbook. And by the way, her candied fig recipe is excellent. You got to try it. Placer County uh, with Placer Grown, and I guess the website for Placer Grown would be placergrown.org, wouldn't it? That's correct. Yeah. And uh, look us up. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. cetera. Um, and we're just always putting out new content to help people know exactly what's in season and uh, some fun videos of our farmers and ranchers, as well as a lot of great uh, recipes and, and different features. There's a lot happening in ag in Placer County. Josh Hunsinger, Placer County Ag Commissioner, thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Fred. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.